Welcome to episode 166 of Control the Controllables. And we're right in the heart of the most exciting period of the year, for myself anyway, as the grass court season is well underway. And a big good luck to all of those that are competing during this time of the year, but particularly to all of our CTC guests over the last couple of years, whether you're a player, whether you're a coach, whether you're a journalist who's reporting on it, a physio, a fitness coach, a hitting partner, enjoy this time of the year. We will be watching on TV as we have done for the last couple of weeks. And our guest today has already got off to a flying start during the last couple of weeks at Queen's and Eastbourne. And he's also the latest addition into the world's top 100 ATP. There's this narrative that if you're not inside the top 100, it's the level of tennis isn't that good. Whereas the point is that everyone's an amazing player, whether you're ranked one in the world or 600. It's just the small things that make you um, the top of the game. Only yesterday did Jack Draper have another top 50 ATP win against Jensen Brooksby in Eastbourne after beating Taylor Fritz last week at Queen's. He started the year 265 in the world. He's won four ATP Challenger titles this year. At age 20, a top 100 ATP player. Someone for British tennis fans. We've seen him coming for a while. Age 16, he made the final of Junior Wimbledon, winning an unbelievable 1917 in the third set semi-final. He's the son of Roger Draper, who many will know as the former CEO of the LTA. He is a lovely, lovely lad. And, and that is something that's come through loud and clear from my transactions with him on this, on this podcast, in setting it up, in speaking to him afterwards. He brings a great insight. He speaks unbelievably posi- positively about British tennis. And this is a one that you don't want to miss. So sit back and enjoy Jack Draper. So Jack Draper, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me on. No, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on. And I know it's somewhat short-lived because next Monday... I believe you moved to 101 in the world, but you'll be you'll be back in it. But this Monday, you became a top 100 ATP player. How did that feel? Yeah, amazing. Um, something that I wasn't expecting to achieve in a, in a short amount of time. I think I started the year about 270, so it's come around pretty quick. But there's been a lot of work that's gone into that. And um, yeah, I'm just, just proud of myself for getting to that point. And... That feeling, I guess, it's a, it's a feeling that not many have in the sport. You know, it's for, for whatever reason, we've put this holy grail of, of top 100. And, and I guess on Monday, you were playing Queens. You know, you're playing a tournament. Mm. How, how much time do you have to reflect on that? Or is it just like, okay, that's happened, but we, we continue mm. Yeah, I, I think I try and reflect as much as possible. I think it's easy in tennis or in life and sport, whatever, to um, get too caught up in, in the present. 
you know, especially in tennis, you can have bad days, bad practices, bad matches, that sometimes you don't look at it from a lens of what you've been doing for months, years, um, that sort of thing. So I definitely, when I when I achieved it and I knew, knew it was going to happen, I definitely reflected and thought, um, I'm very proud of my my achievements, my hard work, and, and thank you for all the people around me who have um, sort of helped me get to that point. But, but then again, there is that point where it's like, now I want to keep going, you know, so... Absolutely. And, and we'll, we'll look back around to that, Jack, because that's, you know, for me and I particularly want to pick up on the point of what a year you've had and kind of quietly done it. You know, I know winning four challenges isn't quiet, but in the tennis world, it was almost like, oh, Jack's won another match. Oh, I think I follow you on Rosaltina. And it's like, it just kept on popping up. Jack Draper, Jack Draper's won. But we'll come back to that. You, you mentioned all the hard work, all the, the people that have been involved. And this is not just over a 12-month, 24-month. This is, this is over a 15-year period, you know, even, even longer. So you come from a tennis family. I guess it was kind of obvious that you and your brother, Ben, were going to play tennis of some sort. But how did it all start for you? And, and how early did you get that bug of tennis yeah I mean my, one of my first tennis memories is when my mum used to be a coach at Sutton Tennis and Squash Club and I was too young to be at home on my own so she used to take me and I used to just hit on the practice wall um, and, and that's how it started for me really um, my parents never really pushed me into tennis I was always I always enjoyed playing many sports um, football cricket I was always good at tennis always had good hand-eye coordination um, but I suppose it got a little bit more serious when I had my first coach, age seven or eight. Um, and then it sort of went from there. But I wouldn't say I was all in with the tennis until I was around 14, 15, to be honest. There's a, an interesting thing that jumps in my head, but I'm double your age. So you might not think in the same way. But as you're saying that, I'm thinking of all the, the kids of tennis coaches that are now at tennis clubs, but they're on iPhones or they're on yeah. iPads, you know, and including my children, you know, they all come down the tennis club, but my youngest one, she's entertained through something else. Whereas I guess back in that day, you didn't necessarily have that. So it was, well, I ever sit and watch I get involved myself. I don't know if that's kind of something that would hit your young mind yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the problem, I think, in tennis now as well, is that unless you have a tennis background, have a tennis family, or um, you have some sort of connection with it, it's tough to get playing. It's tough to get motivated to play. And I think nowadays kids have everything they want. They have uh, iPhones. I think gaming is massive these days. Obviously, football's got a massive presence here in the UK. So it's like the numbers, getting people involved in tennis it is tough. Um, and so I, I guess I was lucky at a young age to have people around me who knew about the sport and sort of um, introduced it to me. But it is, I mean, I, I mentioned to you at the start, this is episode 167, 168. And we've had, you know, from world number ones to coaches of multiple world number ones to Grand Slam champions. We've had all sorts of people on the show and almost every one of them has come from a tennis background, parental, yeah. 
almost everyone. It's, it's like it, to the point where I consider not asking the question. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah the, exactly. Because the answer is like, oh, well, I was younger. I was down the tennis club or I lived next to a tennis club as the other one. So, yeah. so you, Jack Draper, and I know this is a big question for someone 21 years old, but Jack Draper, top 10 player in the world in a few years, done extremely well in, the, in tennis. You know, I've got a real voice that people are listening to. How, how do we change that? I think one of the big things that when I've gone abroad and seen when I've been playing tournaments is sometimes in other countries, say Italy, Spain, there's a completely different culture around tennis. Um, in the UK, tennis is big for maybe three weeks a year, Queens, Eastbourne, Wimbledon, and then it all dies down again. And I think that sort of um, love for the game in this, this country can be definitely developed over time through um, developing, having more courts, sorry, around, around the UK. I definitely think it's tougher being a country where there isn't great weather. But even small things, you know, when I was younger, they used to have a, a lot of kids' days around tournaments. When I go abroad and I play challenges even, there's always a kids' day. There's always loads of kids around the venue, you know, trying to, you know, you're inspired by players, I think, at a younger age. So I think if we can get more kids involved in events leading up to tournaments, more kids ball-boying, I think all those things definitely add to a um, a more likelihood of a lot more kids wanting to be tennis players and, and growing up that way. Very good. I, I you don't have to be top ten in the world to give a good answer. You, you're already <laughs> you're already thinking in in those terms. And and I think were you when you were younger were you a member of a club? Because I think that's another one you touched on Spain, which obviously I see living over here for twelve years. Mm. We had Faku, Cameron Norrie's coach, on, on the show. He talked about that culture in Argentina, Italy, you know, Germany. I'm sure you played German league tennis at some point. Yeah. But the story of you going down with your mum, who's a tennis coach, and mm -hmm. jumping on the wall and playing, when people are members of clubs and it's in the culture to spend the weekend at the tennis club. Like I, yeah. I remember, I remember playing cricket more than I played tennis at the tennis club. However, it was still tennis racket ball. It was on the court, hand-eye coordination. It was being around tennis much easier than to get pulled in to maybe play doubles with some of the older players. Is that an experience you had when you were younger or, is, or was yours a little bit more through through your family? I think I'd say mine was a bit more through my family. Um, obviously, my, my parents used to maybe take me to County Week every now and again. I've got photos on my phone of when I was there, you know, getting with the older guys when I was four or five, six. Um, I suppose my first coach, Justin Shering, he worked at um, WTA, which is um, St. George's College, um, and he'd, he'd run a sort of academy there. And I'd say from age nine to 11, I used to go in squads and um, be involved. My older brother was there um, and there was a lot of older players. So I was always looking up to people. I was always around older people and I always sort of wanted to prove that I was an OK player as well. And I think um, that's how I was introduced to it. I was always around a lot of older people who were um, very intrigued by the game also. So I suppose my love for tennis grew from there, really. Because you and you mentioned earlier that you didn't start taking it that seriously until 14, 15. 
but I've known of Jack Draper since you were 11, 12. Now, I know your dad was the CEO of the LTA at that time, so maybe that's a little bit a part of it. But your results also back that up in its in its own right. You know, so you, I, I don't want the listeners to think that, you know, Ryan yeah. Pen- Ryan Penniston, who's currently in the in the quarterfinals at Queens Club, he genuinely wasn't doing that well at 14, 15. Mm-hmm. But you at age 11 or 12 were already a very good player. How how much international exposure did you get at those young ages? I suppose I went on a few trips when I was younger. Um it was weird my, my sort of tennis journey. I wasn't sort of involved in in a, a training complex where I trained all the time. I had lessons with my coach maybe twice a week. I was playing competitively a lot. I didn't do a lot of training. I always was competing on the weekend okay. or something like that. So I'd I'd go to school. I'd maybe have a lesson here or there, but then I'd I'd be competing tennis on the Saturday most days, and then on the Sunday I'd be playing Sunday league football. So that's what I'm saying. It wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't all in with the tennis. I had other things um, yeah. that I was doing, um, and and that's where at 14, 15 started to realise. Wow, I'm getting loads of injuries from playing football. I'm, I'm hurting my ankle. Then I'm out for tennis for weeks. So um, I suppose from there I was I was more right. I'm all in with the tennis. But before that, compared to a lot of people, yeah, maybe yeah. it's more, more serious. But I'd say it was more like I was competing a lot. I wasn't taking it really seriously in terms of right. I'm doing Monday to Friday training. You know, and and was that something that those around you advised or was that led by what you felt it was yeah it was probably led by my parents um and my coach my coach was really into um Justin Terry's incredibly competitive guy so I think it was more the mindset that if I go and compete then I'm going to learn how to win and lose and and learn the skills and and get thrown in against older players as well um, where I'd get more experience and and learn how to how to play matches as opposed to um, doing loads of training. And how big of an influence was Justin on you and your tennis? Yeah, like massive. He was my coach from sixteen till uh, sorry six until fifteen. Um, Justin, it's weird. My my tennis journey, I suppose, has been in stages, but definitely at that stage, he developed my my love for the game massively. Developed a definitely a competitor in me. Um, I remember uh, when I used to go and see him maybe on a Wednesday after school and I think I'm going to play a, a two-hour session with him. But I get there and he's got the um, SpongeBob tennis nets up and he said, right, we're going to play best of five SpongeBob. Um, you know, and little stuff like that. It's like, well, maybe I'm not hitting tennis balls, but I'm learning the skills. I'm, I'm using my hands. And at the end of the day, I'm, I'm being incredibly competitive. Because he, you know, he's on that sort of wavelength with me. He's he's a student of the game. He loves tennis, and so we we definitely had a massive bond through that. And what about the influence of of your family? Yeah, I suppose um, obviously my mum's the the tennis side of things comes from my mum's mum's brother. Um, so my mum was a great tennis player when she was younger, and was was always involved in the tennis side of the game. Um, my dad obviously had a role at the the LTA. So I was around, I was around tennis a lot, um, and I would say one of the most fortunate things for me was that 
um, my mum, my dad and my brother can can play tennis. So whenever I wanted to go and maybe have a little hit or something, I, I could just ask one of them and and we'd go and play. I think I think I was I was really thankful looking back at that um, for that. It can't be easy for an older brother who's a who's a good tennis player to get his ass whooped by his younger brother. When was the first time you beat him? How old were you, and how did he handle it? Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's a funny one really because I used to we used to play lots of games, you know, not just tennis. We used to play ping pong, all that sort of stuff, and that's another thing which developed that competitiveness in me. I think having an older brother helps that. Um, I've actually only played him once and it was in my first ITF junior event and we were playing each other in the second round um, and Nottingham? I, he, no, it was actually in um, Queenswood and yeah. I was thinking it was on the outdoor clay I was, I think I was about 15 at the time he was 18 and he beat Ryan Gaskin first round who I think you, yes. you, know, you used to coach yeah, or something Yeah, that's right, and, yeah. And the next day we were um, we were coming in. I was thinking well, I'm going to play on the slow green clay. We ended up going to uh, Gosling indoors, um, and all of a sudden he was towering over me, throwing down big serves, and he actually beat me that day four and three. So he's always going to have that over me. The fact that we've played once and uh, he's beat me once. And I remember watching you guys play doubles somewhere, and mm. you were young. You were really young, you know. But it it always struck me that you had a really strong relationship. It looked like it was a, mm. it was a healthy sibling relationship. Yeah, we, we always, we always got on extremely well, me and my brother. We've always had a very close relationship. I think, um, I'm not sure if that's too common or whatever, but I definitely think we've, we've grown up with really good values. Um, you know, we like the same things. We, we both have a bond through tennis, um, and, and yeah, he's actually just got back from university. So it's good to see him again, but we, yeah, we've, We've always been really close, my brother, for sure. And, and the other thing that, and, and you won't know this, but I say this again to, to lots of players, tennis coaches know all the young younger players. Like I remember watching you and Anton Matusevic play maybe quarterfinals in the team tennis, not against each other, but, you know, you, you kind of follow the careers. And, and I always, when I first saw you, because you hear people talking about you and I would go and watch, I need to go and watch Jack. The one thing that stood out for me, which stands out for me in most players that end up being top hundred player in the world was, was the belief that you seem to have, you know, it, from the outside, it, you, you didn't look phased. You look like, and even when I've played and I've coached against you, you know, with Evan Hoyt playing you, and, and, and seeing you then play junior Wimbledon, seeing you play Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon, it, it seems to have been something that you and a lot of the great tennis players we've seen over the years have. Internally, is that something you feel you've always had? And, and I guess the second part to that question, Jack, is at what age did you believe in your heart of hearts, I'm going to have a tennis career? Um, I would say uh, competing a lot at a young age definitely helped the belief that whenever I stepped on a match court that I was able to to potentially win the match. I think I was always playing against older players as well, which you're sort of thrown into that and you have to have the mindset, well, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you and I'm going to do that without fear. 
Um, I suppose in terms of the belief of when I when I really thought I could be a player was I definitely thought I could be a great tennis player when I was 16 and I made the final of junior Wimbledon. Or obviously I was always a good junior, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a good senior player as well. Um, so I always thought that I had the ability to be a good tennis player, but I think when you when you become pro, you all of a sudden realise the complexity and the toughness of the sport. Um, and I think it's it's taken me a while to realise that and and learn that these are the things I need to do to be a top player. And so I'd, I'd only say I truly believe that I could get to the top of the game when I was probably around 18, which sounds mad, but um, it's just the way my journey's gone, really. I'm, I'm wondering which way to take. There's two things I want to ask you. If I ask you the one of them, it might take me away from the other one. So yeah. the, the first one that I want to ask you is, does belief add pressure? Because I guess what comes with belief is a higher expectation. And what comes with a higher expectation comes pressure. I think when I, when I think about pressure sometimes, I, I think that I'm very fortunate to be in the position I'm in, playing tennis, doing something I love, um, going abroad, meeting all kinds of people who have helped massively on my journey and a very, very close friend. Um, I sometimes think that, yeah, pressure is definitely a word that a lot of tennis players struggle with. Um, and I, I suppose that belief side of things, I guess I've always just believed that I could be a very good player one day and I've never tried to think about any pressures or, or whatever that goes with that. I've just tried to think, right, I just need to stay on this path if I'm doing good things day in, day out, then hopefully I can be a good player one day. And I think if you do things with more freedom, I think you end up with better results. And, and on that mindset, is that is that something that you've worked on externally with sports psychologists and, and, and gone that route? Or is that something that you have naturally got from your environment over the years? I think, yeah, it's definitely not. I've had to learn experiences. You know, I've been lucky to have... Um, I'd say three predominant coaches so far, Justin Sharing, Ryan Jones and James Trotman, who have all given me very good values as a player um, and they're constantly trying to improve me as, as a person as well. And I, and I think that comes from them mainly as well, giving me that message on a daily basis that, you know, this is your journey. You're going to have highs and lows. You're going to have all these kind of emotions, which is totally normal. Um, but you just got to keep on doing what you're doing. And if you're putting in the right work, you will get to where you want to get to. Very good. And and, and the, the, the second bit I was going to ask you, you said the complexity and toughness, I think, were the words you used. So that kind of, that, that move from being a junior, staying in the Hyatt Hotel in New York City, playing US Open, you know, spending time in the changing rooms with these top players and all of a sudden you're on the backcourt in Slovenia, you know, staying in some Airbnb, you know, what are the real kind of tough, toughness and complexities that you, that you talk about that often shock people as they make that transition? 
I think I think in juniors you're you're going to nice events. You're at a boys and girls tournament every week, so you're around friends, um, people you've grown up playing tennis with. Um, everything's looked after for you, and then all of a sudden you go out of the juniors, and you're thrown in the futures, and you have to go to some places which have really tough conditions, environments. You're usually on your own, and it's it's just. A really tough reality you have to face especially being a young person I think maybe in this country we don't we don't do a good enough job of almost letting you know about that how tough that step yeah. is I think I was extremely lucky that when I was um, 15 um, I you know started getting coached by Ryan Jones who had was the ex-coach of Corich and and Edmund so he'd sort of seen how tough it was in the pro circuit and he definitely tried to install how tough it would be in my own head so that I would be ready to make the transition when it came. Um, but it doesn't make it any easier. And I think, I think the level of tennis is so high now as well. Maybe in the juniors, you get some matches which are easier than others. Um, whereas when you're, when you're going and playing the futures and the challenges, the level of tennis is better. The conditions are tougher and just what you have to go through on a daily basis in order to win and, and play good matches is a lot harder as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I guess we've been in tennis for, for a long time. I've been in a lot longer than yourself, given my age. But we've always known that these lower-ranked players that are seen as nobodies from the, the commentators on BBC when Wimbledon comes around. But I, I must admit, I had a little smile when when the Dutch guy, Tim Tim Van Ruyten, uh, won the won the ATP event a couple of weeks ago, beating Medvedev, who was about to be the world number one. You know, the world number two hundred and twenty-five, beating the world number one to win an ATP title. I think says everything that people need to know about about the depth of of the sport. Mm. Yeah, I, I think one hundred percent. You know, I, someone messaged me about that the other day. Or oh, Tim won the two hundred and fifty, and I said. I played him at the start of the year. I've, I've been around him on the Challenger Tour, and yep. it's no surprise to me that someone like that could go and win a 250 event because I think everyone's on their own journey to get to the top, and it maybe will take them a bit more time physically and mentally, but it doesn't mean that their tennis isn't already at an extremely high level. And I think that you know some players just take a bit longer to get to the top. It's like, for instance, Karatsev. Everyone was saying that a couple of years ago that he'd you know, all of a sudden come out of the blue and nobody, all the rest of it. But he'd been having great results for years. He probably just hadn't put it together yet. And I think that's the, the thing with a lot of players. It means that they're just taking their time to get to that path. They might have had an injury for two years. They might have, you know, something gone on with their family. I don't know. But there's definitely so many top, top players. And it always it always makes me laugh a little bit, for instance, when... Um, Tissapas, I think, played a five-set match or a four-set match against a guy named Kolar at the French Open. And I know Kolar, he's been on the, the Challenger Tour for ages, battling away. Um, and, you know, he gets beaten a lot of weeks because other players are, are very good too. But, you know, there's this narrative that if you're not inside the top 100, it's the level of tennis isn't that good. Whereas the point is that everyone's an amazing player, whether you're ranked one in the world, or 600 it's just the small things that make you um the top of the game so as a top 100 player you now have earned the right to answer this question what 
what are those small things? You know, what's the, I know there's no magic dust. I know there's no big secret, but we hear about it all the time. You know, those small things, those attention to details, you know, what, what are those little things that you're talking about? I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience, but I think that things that have helped me um, rise up the rankings uh, more recently have been just staying injury-free is a big one. Um, the last few years, I'd say my tennis has always been pretty good, but it's just been about staying on court and developing the consistency of my practices and my strength training. You know, you can't do all that if you're injured and if you're off the court. And so you might your tennis might be in a great place, you might be great, but if you roll an ankle, then you'll be out for two months and you'll lose a lot of your progress. So it will take you maybe six months to get to where you want to be. So I think there's a lot of that that goes on. You know, a lot of good players get injured and then they have to go back to where they started. And I think some of it is a little bit of luck. Um, and yeah, I suppose just doing the right things on a daily basis. I think it's hard in this sport to, to mentally show up every day and give your all and do all the right things that you need to do. Um, and, and it is so tough because everyone's good, everyone's after you and, and you've got to be able to give it your all every day and if you're not ready to do that then it's, it's tough to rise up the rankings and, and get to top 100 I think yeah because there'll, there'll be people listening saying and you get it you get it with the Premier League football as well like if, I just don't understand why they can't give their every their absolute best every single day and people find it hard to understand why there's inconsistency of performance but I would challenge anybody listening whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a coach, whether you're an accountant, whatever you're doing, are you able to give 10 out of 10 on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? And for tennis players, it's then often Saturday as well, you know, six day a week. There's, there's going to be discrepancies but between that, that that is very, very difficult to, to bring those consistencies. And I think that's one thing that's been very impressive with you this year is you want a challenger, but then I believe the following week you want a challenger. And then it wasn't so long before you won another challenger. And, you know, being able to have that base level that, that you're doing on a every single day, because I would imagine you didn't play your best tennis in every mm. match over those, over, those, over those weeks. So is that something you've really noticed and I guess matured into in 2022? Yeah, I think um, as you go up the rankings, as you play the challenges or even the futures, you realise that if you don't show up to play a good match or if you're not all there mentally, then then you're going to lose because other players are great. So if you don't have that consistency, I don't think you, you, you go up the rankings as quickly. It might take you a bit longer. So it's, it's definitely a tough one for me because I think I was always a bit all over the place. I didn't want to train hard. I didn't want to do all the right things and so it was definitely a bit of a, a journey for me to get to, to the point I'm at now but it's definitely a, a more maturity thing potentially as well as having really good influence in people around you that support you um, but I suppose yeah that's something I've really tried to focus on this year is having good days having good practices you know keeping my discipline when I'm not motivated at times um, and sticking to a routine where I know what I'm doing on a weekly basis. I train pretty smartly, so it is manageable that I'm able to do all the work that I need to do. 
and and yeah just I think the biggest thing is just the consistency of where you're at with your mind in in general of of improving and that seems to me from the outside and we're going to talk about male British tennis males here you know the female the female side's doing very well as well but I think it's only fair that I ask you about the males it seems like that's been a big culture change you know as someone who I've been around British tennis for 30 years, really. And consistency was never the thing. You know, when I was playing, you had Tim Henman and Greg Rosetsky, but they were completely away from the rest of us. And then anyone else from 400 or 300 to 900, um, not being around the bush, the culture was train hard. Then you'd probably go out and get pissed. And you'd see people doing that. And then you'd see some people rocking up to the tournament and winning the futures who weren't doing the right things. And, and the role modeling really wasn't very good. You know, and, and if you went through the names and that's not a disrespect to that era, but I think the reality is the role modeling wasn't great. Whereas I look at it now and you start going, and I think Andy, almost Andy dropping back in ranking, <laughs> Has, has maybe yeah. helped that as well because he's then in that mixer. Obviously, Evo's completely got his got his shit together over the last three, four years. Cam, Cam's an absolute example of it. You know, then you start getting the likes of yourself, Ryan Penniston. You know, you're starting to get this this flow of of players that that are a reflection on the culture that has been set and. And if that continues, I have no doubt that that will continue, that there'll be players that'll be knocking on the top 100 door for, for the foreseeable future. Is that something that you felt as well, being involved and being around that? 100%. I mean, I think those three three guys, maybe including Kyle as well, have set a, Kyle as a well, really, good, really good example for, for, the, younger, for the younger guys. Um, you know, especially someone like Cam, you know, he's 11 in the world. It doesn't matter what's going on with him, whether he's losing matches, winning matches. He, whenever I've seen him, he's always shown up with the same mindset to improve and grow as a player. And I think that definitely has an effect on you when you're younger because you think, well, if he's doing all these amazing things, then how's he acting and how's he doing it? Because I want to be like that. I definitely think the LTA have done a, a great job of changing the culture to being more performance-based. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I also think that the players that are in up and coming have got good people around them. Um, myself, the last few years, Ryan and, and James Trotman, um, someone like Penniston has got, um, Ryan Penniston and um, Alistair Gray have got Mark Taylor, who's yeah. been around for a long, long time. Um, and Paul Jubb, who's got... Um, an Argentinian guy, uh, Guillermo Roldan, who was also a top, top player when he was younger. So I think there's a lot of great influences for the players in terms of the people around them on a daily basis. But I also think um, there's a lot of um, benchmark players that we can look up to in Great Britain at the moment and say, well, if they're doing it, we can do it. And, and this is the way to be if we want to get to that level. Well, good. No, I mean, again, and again, just from the outside, it's the team thing that I think is there that didn't used to be there. I always used to watch the Aussies and you'd, you'd go to a challenger tournament. And if one of the Aussies was playing, there'd be like seven of them watching. 
And, 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 and we all like support, don't we? We all feel better when we got people around us. And I think, again, I'm pleased you mentioned the LTA. We've got to absolutely tip our hat to them because I tell you what, people don't half like slagging them off when it's not going well, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I think that what, what, what's been done there and the, the great people that are, that are involved. But going back to the team bit, again, from the outside, the, the pandemic has caused lots of problems in the world. You know, there's, I, I don't like to talk about the pandemic too positively because it has yeah. caused so, so much damage. However, I sat there watching the Battle of the Brits. I, I watched all of these events that, that seemed to come on the back of the pandemic. And for the first time, I watched with real envy and I watched sitting here in Spain thinking, oh God, I wish I was there. I wish I was a part of that event. And how much of it do you think, and again, fair play to those involved, how much of it do you think the pandemic and and those events has has brought that camaraderie together? I think, I definitely think that the pandemic helped it for sure, having those events. I definitely think that the LTA and and the, the complex around the NTC now has definitely cultivated a group of players who want to train there. I think yeah. it used to be a bit old and tacky and, and a bit lifeless, but now it's it's definitely coming to its own and, and we're very lucky to have that sort of uh, performance centre there. Um, I think, from in my opinion, when I was younger, I'd sort of look at other players and I'd think, oh, like, is he winning more than I am or whatever? But I think as I've seen how tough the sport is, I have a real appreciation and respect for the other players who are trying to, go through it themselves and trying to get to the game, top of the game themselves as well. So I've definitely developed a lot of relationships within British tennis and a lot of friendships through just being there for people when, you know, they have a tough day or whatever, because I know myself how tough this sport is. And I believe if we can work as a team and, and be there for one of another on a daily basis um, in terms of having a tough day, a tough loss or whatever, then it, it definitely wants, um, it definitely drives us forward to want to improve and and keep growing and, and learning. And I think I think that's one thing I've seen when I was younger. You know, you had Shapovalov and Felix Adesim. I wonder how it helped their their development as players to the top of the game, having each other. You know, Absolutely. if one of them wasn't there, would it have taken that person longer? So I think it's definitely really healthy to have, um, you know, a competitive environment, of course, but also an environment where you're really happy that others are doing well and and pushing you to be a better player as well. Well, as, as someone who has British tennis in his heart, even though I live in Spain for the last 12 years, it, it's, it's lovely to hear because that's what I always wanted. That's what I always wanted to, to see as a player. It's what I wanted to feel. And I, and I do actually wonder, I wonder if because you guys have kind of pushed past the ranking barrier, that it's a bit easier because I, and I need to wash my mouth out with soap after I say this, I've always felt Wimbledon is a problem for British tennis. Mm. And my reason for that being, not because it's it's the greatest, in my, my opinion, it's the greatest event in the world, never mind greatest tennis event, but because in my day, we set our barriers to the ranking that you needed to get to get a wild card. And there was such a, a, a low ceiling the way that all the players thought. But then if 
Jimmy or Billy, who you traveled with, weren't doing well, you almost thought maybe that barrier might be lowered even more. So instead of being 250 in the world, there was people that were 400 in the world getting wild cards into Wimbledon. And it, I, I always felt that that was, that was the thing that drove the players. And there's players, I'll not mention names, there's players 100% that would want 200, 300 spots off the ranking that they were capable of because they just got their, their nice little pout at Wimbledon and that's what they went to. Whereas now that you guys have all made it past that barrier, you're all a bit more financially secure. It's it's now it's it's maybe much easier now to say, do you know what? We're, we're all in this together. And now, because you're more accessible, Cam Norrie's accessible, much more accessible than Tim or Greg were. They weren't. They weren't. We couldn't touch those guys. They didn't yeah. practice with us. They were too far away. All of those guys are accessible. Now it feels like you guys can start pulling in Paul Job. You can start pulling in Ryan Pedersen, start pulling in Alistair Gray, which is the what I've seen in Spain for the last 12 years. They do that incredibly well. You know, the mm. top players play such a role in the culture within the country. And, and there's there's very much a collectiveness to it. So, so long may it continue. And hearing you speak like that at age 21, Jack, really, really fills me with, with confidence that that's going to be the case. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I remember after Wimbledon last year when I played um, Djokovic, I, I said to myself, my goal is to to come to Wimbledon this year with without a wild card. I want to get in on my own ranking. And because I feel like a wild card is nice and all the rest of it, but like you said, uh, I've maybe grown up where I've heard people say, you know, that the British players always depend on wild cards each year. Um, but I, I'd say one thing that a lot of the players now within British tennis they want to be top players um, and the ones who have got wild cards this year, for instance, I would say they're all up and coming. They're all going to be great players. For instance, I think Alistair Gray's maybe 280 in the world, but he's got an amazing attitude. He's a great player and he's, in my opinion, he's going to go up the rankings way more than where he is um, in this next few months even. So um, I think, yeah, there's definitely been a mindset change and, and I know for myself that I think I, I, I wouldn't want to get a wild card, um, you know, for instance, two or three times. I want to try and say thank you for, for it once and for the experience, but I want to get here next year on my own ranking. And uh, luckily this year, I've, I've been able to do that. And, and well done on that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great achievement. I, on a similar subject, you said you've had three coaches main coaches over the last which you know I think that has definitely contributed to your success you know having that level of consistency how do you pick the right coach how because it, they're blatantly very influential you know it's a bit of a minefield out there it's a challenge for players is that have you been lucky have you how have you managed to pick the right coaches at the right time? And what's some advice for players that are looking to do that? I think I would say, for instance, my first coach, I was a bit lucky. I think my parents maybe knew Justin or I don't know how it came about. Maybe I was involved in a squad at Weybridge and he saw me, but um, I was definitely lucky at this, each stage of my, my tennis career so far to have coaches that 
got it right for me when I was that age. So for instance, Justin, when I was um when I was seven, eight, he developed that love and um that want for me to play tennis and learn about tennis and his energy and enthusiasm for the sport definitely had a huge effect on me. Then when I was 15 and I was sort of in and around the juniors, I maybe still had a junior game and that's where Ryan stepped in. Um I knew I'd knew I'd known Ryan sorry beforehand and I really liked him. So when I when I stopped with Justin and he became available, it worked out that he came and was working at um, JTC with me and George Lofhagen. And he installed in me at 15 the work ethic, which I didn't really have. I, I was all about my skills, um, you know, playing matches. I had no um, no knowledge of how to train properly or or the values that would make me a good player one day. So we we had we did a lot of hard work over over a four year period. And I'd, I'd say that's one thing I've been with all my coaches is that whatever they told me, I've, I've bought into. Um, for instance, I feel like when I started working with Ryan, he was telling me, you need to hit the ball harder. You need to be fear, fearless. Um, you know, all of a sudden you're a bit bigger now. You need to use your weapons. And I feel like a lot of players would shy away from almost going backwards to move forwards. Yeah. Um, and I was I was lucky that Ryan, what he wasn't ever about wins and losses. He was all about trying to develop me as a player and as a person. Um, to I remember just... In terms of being a top player. I remember watching you play Marcus Willis on the far court at Glasgow and Ryan was sat in the stands and I was sat next to him and he genuinely was, he was, he was just feeding back point by point, which you wouldn't have heard mm-hmm. you. I think you might've lost seven, six in the third. You, you, maybe you won, but I think you yeah, lost seven, seven, I lost seven, I lost seven, six. Oh, and Ryan was really complimentary to, to the process you know you were you were taking it to Marcus you were ripping your forehand you were clearly trying to play a game style that you weren't necessarily used to but you did it in the biggest of moments in in a, in a futures match which could have I guess if Ryan didn't have the experience of knowing what that match was relative to the career you were going to have he might have been willing you to just, because that would have been a great win, a win over Marcus Willis, age 16, 17, would have been, would have been a great win. And, and I remember that day thinking, that's impressive. You know, it's, a re- it's mm. really impressive to see that absolute commitment from, from your coach, but also from yourself on the court to, mm. to a game that is going to help you win bigger later. And yeah. because, because in theory... Absolutely. We can all go with that in theory. You know, we we can all believe it. But to actually do it, you know, Ryan deserves the credit, but you deserve a lot of credit as well Mm. for for taking that on board. And I think for the listeners and any players listening, because I know there's a lot of young tennis players listening to this, it's an unbelievable message to take on board. You know, Mm. in in the heat of the moment where you blatantly want to win, of course you do, but you're still got the ability to go, well, actually, this is what is going to help me win later on. Mm. And I'm, I'm going to put it out there on the court. And for me, you get all of your just rewards now for, for that work that you put in and will continue to. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he, he definitely gave me that message in abundance. And I, I suppose 
that's what I'd say to any young player. You know, there's a few guys at the NTC who ask me, you know, sorry, who say they're playing the the junior under 16s or under 14s or under 18s, and they're really down about their loss last week. And I remember back when I was playing, for instance, Tarbs and all those events that people say are so big and so important. I remember back to that time and I think, I don't know why I was so stressed. I don't know why I was so worried because at the end of the day, I should be developing my game for the big picture. I shouldn't be worried about winning at an under-14 or under-16 event because that's not how tennis works. You need to develop your game in order to be a great player later on. Um, And I think that's where, you know, James has been a massive influence on me as well. I came to him and um, my game was a bit raw and, um, we started focusing on the process of being more consistent with my training, not worried about the results, but making sure that I'm doing my fitness. Um, my, my tennis is more consistent and all these things. And I suppose that's where I've been lucky with my three coaches is that they've all been about the process and my enjoyment for sport and developing me as a person. And it's not been about the win, 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 win. Because I think with that mindset, it, it can be really tricky sometimes to um, differentiate um, what you're doing. So I'd say that's what I'd say to any young player listening and wondering about a coach, find someone that is is going to think big picture with you and and also help you become a better person in order to deal with, with tough tasks when it comes to tennis, but also develop your game um, because that's, that's the biggest thing. I'm, um, I'm smiling here because... That, that would be a big philosophy, control the controllables, as, as the podcast is called, which which is about that. It's about, you know, the biggest controllable that you have is yourself, you know, taking responsibility for yourself, taking responsibility for you, the commitment, the intentions, all of those things. Yet the number of parents over the years that have challenged me either to my face or behind my back on that being a bit fluffy, Oh, it's, it's fluffy. You just talk pro. It's because ultimately it's about winning. Ultimately about mm. winning. And here we have Jack Draper, who throughout his tennis career has has been putting the work in, not worried about the results of your words. Mm. Yet here you sit as one of only three players, age twenty one or below, that are in the top hundred in the world. You know, mm. and if if that's not validation for for that mindset and that way of mm. being, I, I I don't know what is. You know, and yeah. it's it's a really really strong, lovely message that I hope is at the heart of what everyone takes out of this podcast. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. So when I was fifteen, I remember this was at a time when I was I was thinking all about the results and all about. Um, you know, how, what's my junior ranking looking like and, and all this sort of stuff. And I remember playing a doubles match with George Lofhagen at a grade one in Berlin. And we rocked on court. We played um, two guys from Italy, um, one of them whom was very good. The other one was very, very poor. Um, and we, we served everything to his forehand. Um, we made sure we hit every ball at him at the net. Um and he was a really average tennis player. Anyway, later on in the, the year, I see him again. He's he's in the consolation of event and he's on the end court. He's hitting the crap out of the ball. Um, he's missing by about a metre every time and he's losing a lot of tennis matches. All of a sudden, four years later, 
I see him winning a challenger in Italy in Bermagada. Um, now he's Yannick Sinner. Um, but that was a real realisation for me that this is someone who's been working on his game, trying to hit the ball like an adult, trying to do all the right things. Obviously had good guidance around him in Piatti and all the rest of it. And he was a complete nobody at age 15, 16, 17. Um, and he obviously just developed his game, focused on his process. And he was a top player before before anyone who was thinking about results or trying to be a good junior or whatever. I don't think he played too many junior events. I think those were the only ones he played. But I just remember thinking he's a really average, not very good tennis player with a young mindset on me. But now I look back and I think, well, he's probably doing all the right things. He was trying to play like an adult and and that's why he is where he is, you know. So it's 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 pretty strange all these experiences you have when you're a younger player of seeing players who are good now. But to jump on the back of that story, you saw him at 15. I saw him in Tunisia in whatever year it was. And he played Evan Hoyt for the second round. He beat Luke Johnson 7-5 in the third in the first round. And Luke Johnson was 5-2 up. So I was watching, thinking, Ev's going to play Luke Johnson in the second round. And I was really pleased that Luke had lost because I was like, ah, oh, this Italian guy, he nails a few balls, but forehand kind of flies. And Ev did a job on him, a three and three. But I'd been watching this kid all week because whenever you go to the practice courts, he was always there. You know, you, you, you saw his yeah. dedication. Well, Tunisia, and if you don't believe me, those listening, you can go and look at his results. The next week or two weeks after was Bergamo Challenger that he won. So yeah. it was literally a week or two before where we saw him and he was still relatively average, but he was doing the right things. He was putting his game out there, you know, and, and if you look at the results from that week when he won the Challenger, he didn't look back. He, he obviously grew in confidence and he just went, didn't he? He then got wild cards, won matches and ATP events. And, and this and, year, top 100. Yeah, just went boom, went, went like that. So it's it's really good messaging. I want to move in the last couple of things, Jack. Um, but at this point, I also have to say, you speak unbelievably well about your tennis experiences. And it's it's amazing for myself, but also for the listeners that they're getting this. So a, a big, big thank you before we end on on, on you coming in and, and doing this because I, I hope people have pens and papers and they're writing these things down because this is these are golden nuggets. They really are. My one thing that I want to jump into, experiences. You're, you're a young lad. You've had some amazing experiences. I can't have you on here without asking you about the two big Wimbledon experiences that you've had so far. And I'm sure you're going to outdo them. But I remember watching, not in the ground, but watching on TV, the 1917 three-set semi-final junior Wimbledon match that just looked incredible. So talk us through that experience at that time. Yeah, uh, I was 16 at the time. Um, it was funny again. So I had played seven junior Grand Slam events before that Wimbledon event. Um, and I remember at Rahampton Juniors the week before Ryan said to me, he sat down with me. This is one year before my final year. He said, look, Jack, 
you're going to finish your junior career at Wimbledon. Every time you you play the futures, you're playing in a way that's become you're you're going towards the right destination with your game. When you play the juniors, every time you you go into your shell and you you tense up and and you don't show what you're capable of. And I think juniors is becoming a waste of time for you now. So I went into Wimbledon. I knew it was my last tournament. I knew that I'd really struggled to be like not tight in those sort of situations. Um, and and I remember getting my first win uh, a junior grand slam, which gave me a lot of confidence. And then I was in the semis before I knew it. And I, yeah, I played an incredibly long match to a guy who <laughs> it's funny. He, I didn't have a great relationship with this player beforehand. We'd always had arguments and all the rest of it, Nicholas Medger. But after that match, we'd become incredibly good friends um, on our journey. Um, but I think that whole Wimbledon junior experience definitely, like I said, gave me that belief that, wow, I could be a top player and definitely something I thought wasn't capable at all. Maybe two weeks or three weeks before I went and achieved um, in making the final. So it definitely gave me confidence that if I keep on trying to do the right things and work the right way, that good things could be around the corner for me. Um, and then when I played Djokovic, that was another amazing experience. Um, bit out of the blue, I'd been injured for the most of the year, so it was sort of struck upon me. Um, and it definitely helped the junior final of Wimbledon going out in front of loads of people. So when I when I faced Djokovic, it was um, that stuff was less relevant, and I could handle the situation better. But um, definitely playing a player like that and. He basically, after the first set, exposed all my weaknesses and, and shown why he's one of the greatest of all time. Um, and those are the type of moments and experiences which definitely I keep in my mind to this day, which helped me. For instance, this week at Queen's, I, you know, I'm like a normal person. I get nervous, all the rest of it. And I'm walking out before my first round. There's a big crowd at Queen's this week. And I'm, I'm thinking back to the experiences I've had playing the juniors and also playing against Djokovic on a big stage like that. And those experiences are helping me to to learn and, and sort of be okay with with the life I'm sort of going into at the moment. And when you won that first set against Djokovic, mm. when I was getting like text messages from friends who don't follow tennis, and you know, that's how it captured people. You know, who's yes. this who's this young kid? Who the hell's this kid? What the hell who's this guy? You know, what what were you what were you thinking? When you sat down, change of ends, one set up, 6-4, I believe. He's slipping and sliding a little bit on the grass. You know, that fresh first day grass at Wimbledon. What was going through your head? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like, in my own head, I, I sort of almost maybe downplay it a bit when people ask me about it because I remember walking onto the court. It was like the court had been rained on for 20 minutes, but neither of us could stand up on it it wasn't tennis. It was like, it was like ice skating. Um, so it was, it was quite funny. It was obviously his first match on the grass. I remember, I think he had a lot of break points that set and maybe slipped over about five times on five different occasions, which was quite funny and, and obviously good for me. Um, but, but yeah, I just remember thinking, wow, look, I'm on the court against one of the best players in the world. I believe I can do some serious damage here. I'm by no means in awe of him or, or thinking I can't do well in this match. And I just tried to to take it um, as it came. Um, and all of a sudden, I was two sets to one down, five one down after that first set. So it went pretty quickly. But, you know, I've obviously 
took a lot of experience and and learned a lot from from the match. Did you think you could win when you were set up? I I thought before when I when I saw him in the draw, that's I think that's one quality I would say I've always had. I think you mentioned it earlier. I, whoever I played against, whoever I play against, whether they're one in the world or 500 or whatever, I always feel like I can win. I always think, well, he's got two arms, two legs. You know, he gets nervous. He has a fan, you know, he's pretty normal. You know, he's not superhuman. Yep. Um, so, so I believe I can always win the match. But I suppose after the first set, I knew that it's a grand slam. I have to be able to win two more. And I did get very fortunate in that first set. So it's, it's going to be hard. Um, but yeah, I, I think after that, I remember it was quite funny. It was the first time I've ever played someone who changed their tactics so quickly due to the conditions. All of a sudden he was playing these really um, low angle forehands, you know, just to get me out of position. But he had the skill to be able to, in the match, think, right, I'm going to get him really off court here so yeah. I can just nail a backhand line or something. So that was another experience. And that's one I've seen from Andy as well. You know, the top players, they really sort of, learn about you when playing you. Yeah, that's it. That's amazing. And and this year, uh, obviously you've you've had a solid a solid first first weekend in at Queens. And mm. what's the are you a goal setter? Are you a do you set goals? Mm. I, th- I think it's good to have goals. I know from my f- past experiences that I've always thought, well I'm gonna be there at the end of the year or I'm gonna be here this is the ranking I want to get to and I'm going to do everything to get to that point. And then I've rolled an ankle or I've hurt myself um, doing something or, and I always, I'm very left, very disappointed. And I I think that I've not achieved it if I don't get to that point. So that's where, again, I say that um, the people around me are very supportive of this is your journey. You're going to have things that are going to be in your way, obstacles, what have you, that's just life. And you've got to be able to, to move past that. Um, and follow your process because it's like I, I think I was speaking to Trots about um, someone asked me about the next gen final because I think I'm about four or five in the race and we were speaking about it thinking oh like will I get there will I and he said to me look if you do the right things on a day-to-day basis it's not you can't control what others are doing you can't control how well others are going to play or how many points they're going to make you just got to focus on yourself that you're not getting injured, that you're looking after your body and that you're doing the right things on a, on a daily basis with your tennis because that's going to give you the best chance of, of making it. Your answer's so good, I can't ask my next question because mm. my next question is, what's your, what's your ranking target for 2022? Like, yeah, I, I, I would have a ranking target. My ranking target at the start of the year was to break top 100. And do you so reassess that? that? Do you reassess that? So I remember when I was working with Lloyd Glasspool, Lloyd had a, a ranking target of, let's say, and Lloyd worked like that, of 450. Mm. And he won the Futures in Tipton or somewhere in September. And, and he, he walked off the court and the first words he said, okay, what's our next target? Yeah. Because it, 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 he knew, he knew what it had done. And, and it was, it was, 
it was driving him. And I think, I think when you're confident and you're doing well, sometimes it, it can help. It depends on how a player thinks. Obviously, if you're picking up injuries and you're struggling, they can the expectation can get too much. So when you broke top 100, in your mind, are you saying right now, let's get the top 75? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said at the very start of the podcast, I've, I'm dropping out of the top 100 again, so I've, I've got a great top 100 again. But I'm sure after that, I think the natural progression would be to make the top 50 and then top 20, top 10, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think it, or I almost think when you make top 100, that the the goals after that, it depends on where you're at. Like, for instance, um, when you when you make top 100, you're obviously playing bigger tournaments. I remember the start of the year, Holger Run hasn't had a great start to the year, but then he turned it around and he's nearly a top 20 player now. So yeah. um, I think, I think yeah, the, the next progression would be for me to, to make the top 50 after 100. And what have you got to do in your game to be a top 50 player? What's the, what have you got to improve to make that next step? Um, I think, I think my tennis is, is already there. It's already ready. I think, the the main thing is being physically better, being able to cope with the demands of the sport. Um, that's one thing that's been tough with my journey is that when I was 15, I was five foot five. And then all of a sudden I grew to about six foot three in the space of yeah. two years. So it's taken my body a lot of time to develop and, and grow into its own. I'm still quite a late developer. So I'm, I'm working really hard on my strength and my conditioning Um and I think it's more about my physical and where I'm going to be physically and mentally rather than specifically my tennis. Um, so so we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, th- I suppose those are the two main things for me is mentally getting myself in a, in a good place on a day-to-day basis and, and making sure that I'm looking after my body. Jack, you've, you've been a star. We have our quick fire round that we do. Um, but, Very good. A, but a big, big good luck. Well done, on the career so far, you know, and I know it's it's not much of a career for you. You've got a lot more to achieve. You know, you're still a young lad, but as you rightly say, we have to stop. We have to celebrate the good things. You know, there's a lot of lot of losses, a lot of heartache, a lot of difficulty that comes with our sport in tennis. And if we don't sit back at some point and just have a little reflection, raise a glass, enjoy enjoy that achievement then sometimes I think, what's the point? You know, what are we doing yeah. it for? You know, so all the very best for the grass court season and all the very best for 2022. You're in great hands. A good friend of mine, James Trotman, he was he was coaching us when when he got ill, actually, because we I lived with Trotters for four years and he got very ill when he was 16, 17. Yeah. And I'm telling you, at 17 years old, he was already a top-class coach. He was unable to play, but he would come on court with us. He's an absolute born coach. He's brilliant. And you're under um, in great hands there. And I wish both of you the very best of luck. Thank you. Are you ready for the quick fire round? Yeah, let's do it. What does control the controllables mean to you? I think it's the ability to every day be able to not, no matter how you're feeling or your, your mindset, if you're losing motivation or whatever, to keep your discipline and keep trying to keep going on the same journey that, that you started out. 
Rafa or Roger? Rafa. Lefty club. Lefty club. <laughs> ATP or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Are you a supporter of the PTPA or not? Uh, I'm not too sure what that is. I, I think I have a few messages about it on my phone, but uh, yeah, I'm not 100% sure what that is, to be honest. I'm going to take that as a not. What, forehand or backhand? Backhand. Serve or return? Serve. Your favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. Medical timeout or not? Yes, but maybe shorter, shorter time. Maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? I think no warm-ups would be interesting. So many people have said that, but I don't think a player has said that. So, But all the journalists, the agents, anybody that's involved at the commercial side of the game has said that. So I love that the player's saying that. Warm-up, on the court next to it, jump on, get started, crack on. And exactly. who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? And you, and you are responsible for getting them on. So don't um, be careful who you say. Well, I, I believe you've had Ryan and James. I'm not sure you've had... Have you had Justin Sharing on no. yet? I think, I think he'd be very insightful in it and a great person to have on the, the podcast. So maybe potentially him. Give, give me the hookup, Jack. I'd love to get Justin on. Also, the coach, Joe Salisbury, when he was younger as well. So uh, someone who's had... Nah. Incre- he's coaching him now as well, is he? Yeah. So someone who's had incredible, in- incredible success and someone who would love to get on. Jack, you're a star. Thank you. I'm not going to keep you any longer. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have Vicky back alongside me. And I think more than ever, giving my poor voice, I need the helping hand of Vicky next to me. So a big welcome back. It's lovely to be back. It's been a few weeks now with our trip away and um, we've had our 12th year anniversary of Sausage Tennis Academy. It should have been 10, but... Um, the pandemic paid to that but uh, my voice seems to have survived all the talking and possibly a little bit of singing a little bit better than yours you weren't the referee in the football tournament that was the <laughs> that is true this was the problem 120 <laughs> testosterone fueled individuals highly competitive individuals <laughs> trying to trying to keep them in check and my my voice hasn't been the same since but what a great one to come back on I know I feel like we've had this conversation because Ross Hutchins was supposed to be this week's guest. We are we are still waiting on the ATP to okay that one. I don't know why because it wasn't too controversial. However, that will come to you in the next couple of weeks. So what a replacement though. What a replacement. Young Jack, Jack Draper. And I think we talk so much on this podcast about different elements of the sport, how to make it, how to train, you know, different people's stories. But ultimately, I just come away from that conversation. But also, and I think I said it at the start of the podcast as well, from our text messages, setting this one up, he sent me a lovely voice note just afterwards as well. 
he just came across like such a, a genuine, humble character, age 20, speaks beyond his years already. And I'm really excited for what he's going to bring, bring to British tennis. I think British tennis is in great hands and having somebody like Jack who is going to hold that torch for the next 10 or 15 years. I don't think there's a better person that could be leading the way than young Jack Draper. Yeah, like you say, he spoke so well, head firmly on his shoulders. But isn't that a common thing at the minute? We, we've spoken to quite a few British tennis players in the last few weeks, months, and they all seem to have such a growth mindset, the way they're talking about their tennis. They all seem to be very supportive of each other. They, they seem to all kind of know each other very well, getting on very well. It seems like there's been a definite shift, as you talked about, um, in, the, in the culture within British tennis. It's it's monumental. At this level. It's monumental, honestly. It's it's something that comes through loud and clear. I give credit throughout the chat with Jack, but I want to give credit again to to those that are involved right now at the LTA within the Federation. For for so many years now, whenever anything has gone wrong, it's been our oh, LTA this, LTA that. And it seems very clear to me that there's strong leadership at the top and it's it's filtering down. I love that they've got British coaches. They've got people that know British tennis. They've got people that have seen the good, the bad and the ugly the last 20, 30 years. A big shout out to a good friend of ours, James Trotman, who I've said for a long time that he's one of the best coaches that there is out there. And him taking the reins with Jack at the start of the year has given him that little bit of focus, I think, that he, that he needed. You know, Jack is without shadow of a doubt a top 30 player in the world. You know, I think he'll, he'll be a top 10, top 20 player. I really do. And to see that kind of spreading amongst all the other players, Ryan Penniston, another absolute true professional. You know, we saw him at 15 years old out here at the Soto Tennis Academy and he was he was an average tennis player at best and he's kept going, he's kept going and now within that system, within that culture, you know, he's coming through quarterfinals of the Queens and there's more to come. You know, Jodie Burridge, another guest that we had on the show, she's broken top 150 in the world in the last few days, had another fantastic win over Petra Matic yesterday at Eastbourne. So there's a real feel-good factor with British tennis right now. I hope the press get behind that during this Wimbledon, even if there is a few first-round losses. You know, this is about the bigger picture. We're starting to create lots of rich people, and from that will come some millionaires. And uh, hats off to everyone that's involved, and long may it continue. It took me a second to get your analogy then. What about the rich people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's a one actually. I heard Chris Souter, so Chris Souter, if you're listening to this, I, I stole this from you many, many years ago. And I heard Chris saying, and I liked it a lot, that too often systems try and create one millionaire and they're trying to create one champion. Whereas the British tennis as an example, or any federation, the same with us as an academy, 
if you provide the best environment, the best culture to allow lots of people to grow and become rich, there will be some that then go on to become millionaires. And I think it's exactly the same in tennis. You know, this top 100 holy grail, I disagree with. You know, I think set the right culture, the right environment. How many players can you get inside 300 in the world? You know, you get enough of them, then you're going to get your top 100 players. You get enough of them, you'll then get your top 20 players and you'll start to then get your Grand Slam champions that come through. And I just think it's a much healthier way to look at it. And it seems to me like that is now starting to happen. We can't rest on our laurels. We need to keep pushing. But there's no reason the amount of resource, the amount of great people that are involved in British tennis, that this shouldn't have been happening a long time ago. So I'm really pleased to see from the bottom of my heart, I really am, you know, pleased to see that these these good people are making a difference and there's lots of players coming through for the British public to enjoy. Well, the depth is there as well, isn't it, within men, the men's particularly that we hadn't seen for, for so many years. But you said there that you think Jack is going to be top 30. What specifically makes you think that? Belief. You know, it's if you listen to him and you see him and you follow him, he, he has a belief. You know, he, he said it himself, I know that my level is there if I can stay healthy. He, and he does, he's, his level is there. He he absolutely believes it. I think he's got the right people around him. I I love his mindset and I think it's a one I've been preaching for years and he kept saying it, you know, he's he's had people around him that have told him not to worry about the results. And he's still even to this day, he's in that mindset of where he he's developing his game. You know, he's putting his game out there He's trying to execute the way that he wants to play. He just seems very calm to me, very assured about about what he has, and 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 I think he, he's a real he's a real example, actually. Especially with his age, with him still being so young, I think he's so relatable to the the teenagers just coming through now. As well as talking about the results, he was also mentioning how many matches he played at such a young age. You know, more matches rather than focus on training because it was all about learning to win, learning to lose, you know, growing those competitive skills. And we were just talking because we saw his birthday was, it was an end of December birthday, the worst birthday in tennis. And we were having this conversation the other day, our boy has an end of November birthday. There's always been the topic about how much of an impact birthdays have development wise, physically, mentally, emotionally. That would have been a really interesting one to, to speak to him about. Yeah, no, it would have been. I um our researchers, they should have picked that up. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, it really, but I, but I think even hearing his mindset now and knowing Jack for many years, the fact that he played many sports up until he was 14, 15, he's someone that seems to have got a really nice balance. Yeah. And, 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 and I think probably didn't get too carried away. And again, You've got to give a lot of credit to his family, to to the to the people that were in in his corner. Justin Sherring, you know that. Uh, I love the story of him turning up and just playing best of five sets, mini tennis. You know, came to do his tennis lesson. Now, if he didn't have parents that were in tennis, 
you might have a parent that goes, well, what am I paying for this for? You know, what's this all about? But the fact that it, that was developing the, the competitive skills, you know, having an older brother, I think, helps, you know, and an older brother who, there's another pretty famous tennis player that we know from Britain who had an older brother as well, who he competed against at, at all times. You know, I think that helps a lot to, to bring the competitor out and people, you know, I had two older brothers, I know what it's like. You're competing in everything that you do. So I think there was lots of stars aligned and he just seems to me just to have just got a really, really nice outlook perspective. I worry that people become a bit obsessed with this sport at such a young age that it causes a lot of stress within families. And I love hearing stories. Of course he was good when he was young. Of course he was committed when he was young. But at the same time, he was building all the time into, into having a sustainable career. And I still see it with him. Age 20, he's got a lot of growing to do. But for me, I tip my hat to you, Jack Draper, to all the team around you, because I think you're a fine example on and off the court to many. And a hugely exciting player for us British tennis fans to be watching over the next few years. Absolutely. And we're in a hugely exciting time for British tennis fans at the, at the minute with the grass courts. We had all the excitement last week with Ryan Penniston at Queen's. We've got Wimbledon coming and up. And Lloyd Glasspool. And Lloyd Glasspool. That was amazing, although a bit of a heartbreaker at the end, losing in the final in the championship tiebreak. But lots still to look forward to over the next couple of weeks. And we've got a slightly different Wimbledon preview this, this year. Yeah, so we're, we're combining US college... British US college players that are now playing Wimbledon this year. Because there's a lot of them this year. There's a lot. And, you know, so there's going to be a few of them that are going to come on. We're going to explore that pathway of US college and and how that their journeys have gone to Wimbledon. But at the same time, we will be previewing, getting their picks, their watchets for this year at SW19. And if you have any questions you'd like us to ask the players or you want to pass on your picks for this year's Wimbledon, you can email us at ctc.podcast at sototennis.com or reach out to us on Instagram at ctc.podcast. Um, until then, I will be getting Dan on the lemon and honey, so hopefully he'll sound significantly better for that preview. And big apologies that everyone's had to listen to me like this, but hopefully... The amazing guest, Jack Draper, made up for that. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables.